Podcast Movies Edition, presented by Phil Hinton. Hello and welcome to the Movies Podcast for May. Coming up, we review Sherlock Holmes, Tangled 3D, Castle in the Sky. We also go to the cinema for a review of Hannah. And Chris rounds up with The Incredibles. And joining me this month on the Movies Podcast, we've got Chris, Simon, Mark, and for one episode only, Steve. Good, ev- good evening, guys. Hello. Good evening. <laughs> and uh, we're here for, obviously, Movies Podcast, and it's a review edition, and quite a few films to get through in this edition, so why not hand it over to Chris, first of all, and uh, let's talk about Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes, yes, indeed, why not? This would be the... Complete collection, the Basil Rathbone set from the 1940s, and uh, absolutely tremendous set. 14 films on five discs. The films have been out before, but not on Blu-ray. Uh, they went out on standard quite a while back, both in the States and uh, in the UK on different labels. Apparently fully restored even back in those days. And they did look really, really good. Um, some look better than others, but you know that's par for the course for such vintage material. Anyway, they've undergone the, uh, the 1080p treatment, and they do look, across the board, quite sumptuous, I've got to say. Ravishing black and white photography, very atmospheric, um, very moody. Um, a few films do look slightly grainier than others. Obviously, some couldn't be restored quite to the same level. Uh, I'll talk about that a bit more in, in depth later on. But for the time being, um, Basil Rathbone was, for many people, the definitive um, Sherlock Holmes. Uh, but his hawk-like eyes, that Roman nose, the kind of dynamic, verbal personality... He wasn't content to just sit back and like you know analyze the the, the the mystery from the parlor room sort of setting, as many other interpretations of the character have done. Um, he was quite aggressive, very assertive, and quite domineering. But to bring him back down to um, our sort of level, they saddled him with the bumbling sidekick of uh, Doctor Watson, who, as we all now know, because in the advent of the new Sherlock Holmes, we all know that she, uh, the home, the poems that Watson can be quite a hero in his own right. And the way that Arthur Conan Doyle wrote him, he was certainly, um, you know, a sort of captain of daring do himself. But this was Nigel Bruce, the great uh, stalwart of bumbling characters, Nigel Bruce. And he created, you know, once, once you get around the fact that he's, he's there as the, uh, you know, the foil, the pitfall character, the guy who's going to drop homes in the, in the, uh, the, the, the doo-doo as often as he possibly can. He's going to make a hash of any plan that... Um, Holmes has got to trap the, uh, the perpetrators of these heinous crimes. But it works great that the two have a, a, an outstanding rapport together. Uh, they bounce a lot of verbal stuff back and forth. And you know, they became like a very firm family favourite. A great double act in their own right. Now, these films, uh, mainly directed by one guy, which was uh, Roy William Neal, I think I'm right in saying, who was a... Uh, a sort of jobbing director for Universal. He'd done a lot of uh, Universal horror movies, namely um, Frankenstein Meets the Wolfman, which is one of my favourites. And he brings that kind of uh, gothic uh, sort of horror milieu to the um, the stories. 
A few of them certainly are horror orientated. You've got Misty Moors, you've got um, Strange um, Killers, which you, you're not quite sure exactly how they're going about their deeds. Um, but horrible victims are left in, in, in the wake of their crimes. And of course, you've got Professor Moriarty cropping up now and again. First two films in the series uh, were not done by, were not restored in the same way. So they look kind of patchy. This would be The Hound of the Baskervilles, which is possibly the, the greatest Sherlock Holmes story ever. And the immediate follow on was Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, which was a bit more in the heroic sort of mold, the, the more sort of um, obvious murder mystery type of thing. Um, they all look much better than I've ever seen them before. And I've watched these films quite a lot, and I've watched them on the, um, obviously, the standard discs. And the improvements made are quite considerable because you've got deeper blacks, you've got a much better grayscale on it, you've got far more detail. The, the backgrounds, uh, obviously, these are, these are you know, uh, 1.33, but the, there's a lot of depth to the image as well, which you wouldn't normally expect. At least I would never expected it. But if you look around the um, the... The settings, okay, you, you can read the spines of books in the background. You can see all the paraphernalia in um, Holmes's uh, office. Uh, it just looks a lot, lot better. Um, Audio-wise, well, yeah, there's still a bit of hiss and crackle here and there, but they have been cleaned up again. Uh, they do sound better. Uh, and th these are films of sparkly dialogue, uh, very clipped, you know, very fast sort of speech patterns. And, you know, it, it comes across perfectly well. Uh, as I say, the first two films tend to look a, a little bit iffy. Hound of the Baskerville certainly has uh, a lot more wear and tear on it, but it doesn't matter. It just, it just adds to the, uh, that, that vintage flavour, that sort of cosy, uh, late-night horror, double-bill sort of atmosphere, which is what these films seem to revel in. Uh, so I say, you've got 14 movies there. To, it's a great box set. It's quite expensive, got to be honest. This is a, the American box set. Um, I've forgotten how much it cost me, but it cost a fair bit, got to say. Uh, Extras-wise... Well, you're not really talking a great deal here, which is a bit of a shame. I would have liked to have had some kind of retrospective making of, but you have got commentary tracks on a few of the titles from uh, Sherlock Holmes, Experts, and, you know, they add a fair bit. But they're in that kind of style where if anyone's watched any of the old Universal horror movies or any of the old classics, the vintage movies that have come out on Blu-ray, and you have these commentary tracks, uh, they tend to be a kind of who's who. This is what this guy did. He then went on to act in so-and-so with so-and-so. He worked for this studio. It's a minefield of trivia. And then, of course, you have some where they tend to just describe the on-screen action as you, almost like an audio descriptive sort of track. But, you know, it's, for fans, it adds a bit more. Uh, you have a restoration documentary, which is, again, carried over from the, uh, the original um, standard box set, where they explain how they went about it, how it took about 10 years to do all this restoration, um, very painstakingly done, um, and how some of the films were in such a poor state, you know, they were literally, you know, they're on the last legs, so they had to go to find TV prints of these things and even add the Universal logos at the start and at the end to, to certain titles. But, you know, it, by and large, it's pretty much seamless. I wouldn't think you're going you're gonna to spot any of that. Uh, but a classic series of movies... Non-stop excitement. Towards the end of the series, it's getting on a bit, and they're kind of condensing them down to like hour-long pot boilers, which is a bit of a shame because you know the stories were always good enough to to carry on a bit further, but they seem to be running out of steam. Certainly towards the end of the series, Rathbone himself was getting tired of playing the character. But, but you know who wouldn't, to be honest, after 14 movies, Nigel Bruce seemed to love it and, re and revel in it. 
And it's kind of nostalgic for me to look at it now because Nigel Bruce, especially towards the end of the series, looks just like me dad. And so it's kind of, kind of cosy watching me dad bumbling around with uh, Basil Rathbone. <laughs> I should, should be phrased that, I suppose. But, um, but great, great stuff. Personal favourites would have to be Hand of Baskervilles and Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, the weird thing is that he, he tends to... This is a clever thing about the character. Like Doctor Who, he can exist in any sort of time period because he travels through time. Sherlock Holmes seems to be able to migrate from the Victorian period to the Second World War. Now, the reason for this was quite simple because the films were quite a successful run. He was a popular hero. And, of course, you had a war going on. So this was obviously going to you know, foster you know, patriotism and uh, you know, a bit of escapism as well. So you had Holmes combating the nasty Nazis and you know, rescuing secret weapons and plans and documents and, and double agents from across the, the borders and all this. It, and, you know, it, it doesn't affect the overall series because his character remains the same. He doesn't change for the times. He is the same character, which is marvellous. Another great one uh, is The Scarlet Claw. Oh, that is an absolute classic. It's like a werewolf t- type of story. Off they go to uh, the wilds of Canada, where this town's being ravaged by a series of horrific attacks. The throats are being ripped out. But it's very, very Scooby-Doo-ish because you have a kind of glowing creature running about the, uh, the misty moors and the swamps. And the mystery of why I think this thing glows, exactly what the, the nature of this beast is. Uh, it is. It's a wonderful, wonderful little horror story. Lots of neat characterization in it. A fair bit of humor thrown in, but none of it clumsy, none of it untoward. All works to a T. Um, the Spider Woman's a great one. You've got the Pearl of Death as well, which is great. You've got back-breaking um, mon- monster brutes who are like just thuggish, thuggish henchmen um, who can just snap spines. It, it's, it's wonderful, wonderful stuff. Uh, there's always death. There's always a mystery. And there's always a neat little roundup at the end. But what I would have to say is, again, with the, uh, the 40s time period, there's a kind of patriotic coda at the end of it which, oh dear God, you don't need these things. There's this one, especially at the end of um, Scarlet Claw, which doesn't fit in at all with the story as Nigel Bruce and Basil Rappin are driving back across this majestic countryside and um, Holmes is waxing lyrical about, the, about Canada, the colony, you know, and it was, you know, this is the gateway to the new frontier. Watson, look, look around you, this is a marvellous place. Look at the people there, striving, working with their own bare hands, toiling away in the earth, creating more for, you know, Great Britain. And <laughs> Watson just turns to him and says, like, very good, Holmes. Did, um, did Churchill say that? And Holmes just goes, yes, he did, Watson. Yes, he did. And <laughs> it's just <laughs> a really, really pathetically, you know, pseudo-patriotic clarion call at the end of it, what was a great horror mystery. But, you know, it's, it's part of the, uh, the, for, the format for these movies. And I've got to say, I really, really recommend them because they're tremendous good fun. Uh, and the, the weird thing about it is, you know, you think 14 movies, oh, I could watch one a week or something like that. Well, you don't. You, you could easily sit through all these one after the other, as I virtually did, because they're so addictive. Such a great little, um, you know, atmosphere that they create. It's, it's wonderful stuff. Way recommended. Mark, you're into these, aren't you? Oh, yeah. No, I, I, I loved all the older Basil Rathbone, Sherlock Holmes. and the, But I do agree about the, the little... Um, soliloquies and you know epilogues where they they wax lyrical about you know not giving in to evil and all that kind of thing it's it's often 
wistful looks across at the sunsets and, you know, standing yeah. there, grab the collar and talk about Churchill. And they Although do I seem, it, it's, it's weird and it, it's, it's strangely quaint. And it, in one way, it does kind of add to the atmosphere. But they do jar, particularly, as you say, when you've got some of the more atmospheric um, adventures that, that do have that little kind of horror mystery twist to them. To yeah, suddenly go in and start talking about empires and and giving into evil and all that kind of thing, you just think, you know, it it it, it grates slightly. But I mean, obviously, you can fully understand why they did it. It's yeah. but it, it's like looking at a great film and then seeing a just a great big, you know, Britain needs you poster at the end of it with Basil Rathbone's face on it. It is an excuse to turn the film off just before the final minute. <laughs> right, done with that one. Let's move on to the next. You know. But uh, I think you made a comment about Basil Rathbone's hair, didn't you, at one point? Oh, yeah, yeah. I, that is one thing that I certainly <laughs> couldn't stand when he moved it into It is ridiculous, era. isn't it? <laughs> the Nero-esque hairdo, and it just... He looks dishevelled, and to me, that, that was completely, you know, the antithesis of Holmes. He was supposed to be cool and collected at all times, and they've just... It just looks like someone's gone, here, little fella, and ruffled his hair. Yeah, and put some mousse on it, yeah. I mean... It, it, it is it is a weird sight, especially in the early ones. He tends to adopt this kind of rough and ready appearance, doesn't he? Uh, the rest, most of the films, he's kind of is slicked back and brill creamed, and you know looks immaculate. But uh, yeah, there are a few where he looks absolutely ridiculous. But having said that, his disguises there's a funny bit as well. I mean, it's always a thing for Holmes putting disguises on, and when he does this, it's quite obviously it's Basil Rathbone there. But they often dub someone else's voice over him. It's just, it's just ridiculous. And he takes a nose off. Aha! Watson, it was me all along. And, and, and he reverts back to Rathbone's voice. I think in those instances, having the, the kind of Bruce character being, uh, or Watson character played by Bruce, it, it's as the bumbling fool. It actually works in those moments. Because mm. if he was as, as smart and as astute and as this kind of, you know, all action kind of Renaissance man type figure, more as he was in the books, you'd say, well, Come on, you'd know that that was Holmes, but because he's yeah, this, you know, the it. kind of bumbling, farcical figure, you can kind of see him as this, you know, kind of lovable, kind of almost like a human Labrador. He's just this oaf that just kind he's, of loves his master. Like, um, Holmes is ward, isn't he? Holmes is, is like trying to tutor him, mentor him. Like, these are the ways, and it's kind of like half of the series. You kind of think, well, he, Holmes has now given up on any kind of education system because he knows this guy can't possibly do it. Watson. Look after that box. I'm only stepping out the room for five minutes. Don't let anybody take that box away from you. Okay? Do you understand? Nobody. Don't fall for any tricks like you normally do. Don't oh, talk strangers. Don't, don't worry, Holmes. I won't, I'll, be, I'll be fine with it. No, no, don't worry. I'll be sight at all. And um, Holmes disappears for a couple of minutes. And it, lo and behold, some slinky, um, you know, um, sort of mafia minx has come in and said, oh, I wouldn't mind a cup of tea, Mr. Watson, while I wait for Mr. Holmes to come back. Oh, no, don't worry, dear, I'll go and make that for you, right, mate. And off he goes, and of course, she just takes the box. Holmes comes back. But, Watson, where's the box? Oh, I've done it again, haven't I, Holmes? Yes. Yes, old fella, you have. Come here. He gives him a little little knuckle on the side of the head. Yeah, daft old coot, yeah. In a way, Watson, you've saved the day because now she's left this behind and I can trace it from that. I was going to say they did kind of throw in this this nice little twist that in some ways his idiocy would actually give some little clue away that Holmes couldn't see, you yeah, know, almost yeah. as if he was looking too closely at a mystery. And I was going to say about the uh, disguises before. There's one great disguise he adopts where he becomes like a 
this old sailor, vicious old sailor, prowling around the, um, the, the docks trying to find this particular guy. And he, he, it's quite, it, there's not much of a disguise, so he just puts like, you know, old clothes on and a very sinister sort of look about him. And this guy bumps into him and he smashes a bottle on the, uh, on the table and turns around with the broken end and puts it to the guy's throat. And he goes, yeah, yeah, come near me again and I'll, you'll be getting this in your face. And it's really, really why am I doing all these impersonations? <laughs> good God. And uh, it, it's really good because you genuinely think, God, you, you do it. He's actually do it. He's going gonna, he's gonna, you know, to bottle him. Good stuff. Good stuff. And as I say, absolutely recommended. If you don't want to get these movies now after reenacting half these scenes for you, you know, there's something <laughs> wrong with you. I liked your Boris Johnson impression. It's fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the great thing, I mean, what you say about, you know, Basil Rathbone being able to do these various disguises, it did actually show a slight different side to his acting ability that, he, you know, he yeah. was very much, you know, either in the kind of hero figure or in the, the classic villain figure beforehand. And then, you know, just with these few different disguises, you can see a little bit of genuine acting talent there coming through that he's not just this two dimensional stiff upper lip, you know, kind of uh, figure that he can actually change, you know, I mean, admittedly, as you say, it usually involves just putting on some shabby clothes and a, strangely, a hunchback often, but, <laughs> and a, you know. And a big it, waxy nose. <laughs> yeah, but the, there were times there where, you, where it, you know, it did seem to stretch him slightly, and, and yeah, just damn good fun adventure films. Okay, uh, moving on from uh, classics to a new film just coming out on uh, 3D Disc, and uh, Simon's going to tell us all about it. Tangled. Thank you, Phil. Not brand new disc it's been out a couple of weeks now i've only just got hold of it so i'm looking at it as we speak almost as we speak um i haven't even put finger to keyboard yet so this is completely off the cuff as it were but i have actually watched it which is a plus point for this podcast don't you think it's a rarity for you <laughs> it's a rarity. It's, it's, it does make Get a difference when you <laughs> Okay, Tangled is the latest um, film from Disney. It's based on the Rapunzel character, which is a um, uh, well, she's eighteen in the film. I can't remember how old she is in the in the Brothers Grimm story, but she's uh, trapped in a town. She's got extremely long hair. Rapunzel, Rapunzel, let down your hair. And um, Chris, can you remember the, the original what? Brothers Grimm fairy tale? Because I can't <laughs> um, remember it at all. Because I oh, mean, I... This, this Tangled is, is is a very clever film. It, it, it uses bits and other bits, and you know, it, I mean, it just uses the uh, the original uh, folklore tale as a springboard. I mean, I, I don't yeah, think there's it's... any there's no outlaw character who becomes the boyfriend and yeah, champion yeah. and savior. I don't think. In fact, yeah. I always thought there was some kind of gnome in this in this film as well. <laughs> or is that Rumpelstiltskin? Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. I, I must admit, I don't know. But I know the film obviously massively deviates uh, when it comes down to. Yeah, I mean, I, as I said, I can't really remember the, the actual the, the the full story of what it's based on because it's 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 a very very Disney film. This one, um, loosely based on on the Rapunzel character in her tower, in her locked away in her tower for eighteen years, or when when we when the story starts proper, there's this big big preamble bit of how she gets caught. Anyway, um, she's in the she's in the tower, and every and on her birthday, she looks out of the window and she sees these lights in the sky, and her dream is to go and see the lights in the sky and her mother obviously um, surrogate mother here denies her this one request on her 18th birthday it's a, it's a very disney princess character in that she's um very ballsy knows what she wants to get um and knows how to get there um which is quite a almost a strange character trait to have from someone who's been trapped and has spoken to no one except for 
a mother for 18 years, so I don't quite know how she managed to get quite her... And their little chameleon friend, uh, Pascal. Well, pa- yeah, okay, the, the little chameleon friend. But that doesn't talk, does it? <laughs> Everybody has a little chameleon friend. Oh, okay. that, that, that and a frying pan, I suppose. She, she, is a, she wields a frying pan with, um, f- with the with utmost... wifely vigour. <laughs> Absolutely. The second protagonist, apart from Rapunzel, is is the the thief uh, Flynn Rider, who uh, finds Rapunzel in her tower. She wields the uh, the frying pan, knocks him out, and then has the the big argument with her mother. This is when the the uh, the mother turns on her real darkness. You can't go out. You know, it's really really quite frightening. In fact, this this whole mother character is really quite a dark, insidious, nasty character um and at this one point you you see why i mean the, the, even the, the the camera dims down it gets very very dark and the eyes brighten up you know the, the typical witch type disney-esque character here saying you can't go out anyway that's how um uh, rapunzel and flynn sort of get together they she um uses the uh the tiara as a bargaining tool take me to see the lights and you can have your tiara back and from then on you can see exactly where the film's going to go. Two mismatched characters, uh, male, female. One wants to get away, one wants to do a certain thing, and you know where it's going to go. I don't have to spell it out. So, Simon, well, I will say that the the, 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 end, the end result in some ways reflects its troubled history because I think that film was in production for over 10 years. Originally, it was going to be a genuine adaptation of Rapunzel. Then it morphed into a sort of pseudo-sequel to Enchanted, where a girl from the real world ends up in the cartoon world. And then eventually it became sort of more this sort of teen-friendly uh, version that you've got now, which is kind of uses Rapunzel as a springboard, but actually is very dissimilar to the actual original story. And I mm. think in some respects that troubled history and all those different ideas being thrown around results in a slightly mixed up, uh, although rather charming. I, I mean, I enjoyed it, but um, yeah, I think it, you're right. It's reflected in the end product. But you can't um, stick also to the original folk, folk tales because they'd be exceptionally nasty. <laughs> 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 you, could, you couldn't sell them to the kids, you know. You no, just, it also ended up costing over $200 million after all. <laughs> God. Expensive. God. But the, as, as for the, uh, the picture quality, or, or the, in this case, the 3D quality, it's exceptionally good. That's, that's one thing they've definitely got it right. Um, it's, it's, not a, um, it's not a very pointy film in that there's not a lot of you coming out at the screen, which is great. It's all about the depth, and it's all about the naturalistic look, even though it's a, an animated film. Of the characters, you know, there's there's a tangible depth between the the over the shoulder shots when you're looking at someone um, very close to the background. The um, you talked about the the chameleon there when when the chameleon is sitting on Rapunzel's shoulder, so it's slightly closer to the screen. That is terrific. Her hair, you know, when she's swinging from various parts of the rafters or when the dam breaks. In fact, one one of the best scenes I thought was when the the, the two characters, the the male and the female, are trapped underwater. It's it's set quite darkly with with some quite blue hints to them. Um, Rapunzel slightly to the front, Flynn slightly to the back, and you've got the water lapping between them. I thought that was a brilliant use of 3D there. Just a very very understated scene because you've got the two characters there, the way they're placed, and then the, the water lapping at you with the cave slightly towards the back. I thought that was a terrific scene, probably the best of it. Put you in the cave beside them, then yeah, is that what you're yeah, saying? Yeah, it was it was a just the use of the light and the camera position and the way that Excellent. the water moved it was it was fantastic really really good immerse you in the movie 
Absolutely, I totally agree. It, it's one that it's been. It was designed for 3D, and it's been used in a really imaginative way that that enhances the story. The way that 3D should be used. It's not throwing things at your face all the time. It's just drawing you into the into the picture. And and, and as you point out, that seems quite good because the use of 3D creates quite a claustrophobic mm-hmm. sense of enclosure because you know, you're in a tight space which is filling up the water. Um, and those are the kind of things that where 3D really lends itself to the filmmaking process. And, and uh, tangled for for 3D effects for, for 3D, you know. Um, uh, experience Tangled definitely uh, is one of the ones I'd highly recommend people who who've got a 3D TV or a 3D projector buying. I think it's it's a, it's a really good movie for that. Uh, as a movie overall, it, it's enjoyable. It's got a certain charm to it. The music's quite good, um, but definitely as a 3D experience, it's really mm. one of the best I've seen recently. Absolutely, um, and that's obviously helped by the sound. You know, 7.1 um, DTS Master Sound, awesome. Um, God, yeah, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm, and I didn't, I don't like this, didn't particularly like the songs much, but that's when it really comes alive, front, back, and sides at you all the time. And it's you got your hair cut as well. <laughs> <laughs> I did. And well, it that, that, that is a good, that's a good sound system, that isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Give you a trim while you, while you were sitting there. I thought the sound yeah. was absolutely incredible on this uh, because. The bass was was really really low and surging. It genuinely pushed you back into the uh, into the city. You know, well, if you have a city, <laughs> uh, re- real gut punching stuff. Even a bit uh, the first chase where Maximus leaps over the air. Um, there's a broken tree, uh, broken yeah. tree, collapsed tree, and he hits the deck, um, and you're surging along beside him. There was a genuine sort of cinematic oomph to that, and lots of other scrapes that they got into. I mean, the, the dam coming down that was a great moment yeah. as well. But you expect yeah. that to be big, but it was more like the subtle things I thought, uh, which really sort of highlighted how good that sound mix really was. Yeah, it's it's a flawless uh, AV. Yeah, and I've only, I've only seen the uh, the two D version. Um, extras wise, um, you have deleted scenes. Um, there's a, a very short making of, and a few little bits. There's not not a huge amount actually on the disc, um, so I don't really think I'll go into that because the AV um, trounces it. And the Listen, 3D Disney is, is tends to put the um, extra features, the good stuff, on the classics, don't they? Yeah. Uh, the new stuff, they just well, it's for the, they're going to buy it now and they're going to buy it again in a few years' time and maybe release it with all the stuff yeah. on it, all the gubbins, so they know they can get away with it. So, Tangled 3D, worth it for the 3D, definitely. Okay, so that's Tangled on uh, 3D Blu-ray and that's also on normal 2D Blu-ray. Uh, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back with some more reviews. The biggest news and the best, best reviews. Best reviews. Hard, tiring work. You're listening to the AV Podcast. Join the discussion at Europe's largest home cinema website. Log in to avforums.com. So welcome back and uh, before we get into any further reviews... 37 years ago today, filming started on what was to become the first real summer blockbuster. Any ideas, guys? 37 years ago. Jaws, Jaws, I would assume. It was indeed Jaws. And to celebrate uh, the fact, there are uh, two new books coming out that I thought I would mention because they look absolutely stunning. They're called Memories from Martha's Vineyard. And uh, there's two editions, a limited collector's edition and a paperback edition. So if anybody wants to find out a bit more about these, because uh, I think I'm right in saying, guys, that this is in everybody's top ten when it exactly, comes to film. Top two. Yeah. So the web address is mvrememberjaws.com, and it's Jaws Memories from Martha's Vineyard, written by Matt Taylor. Thousand full-colour and black-and-white images, 
paperback edition fifty nine ninety five in dollars, and uh, the collector's edition hard hardcover special edition. It comes with a piece of the fiberglass hull from the Orca Two. Oh, oh my God! Come on. <laughs> Which was the uh, the the one that sinks in the film, and it's owned by Lynn and Susan Murphy, who will also give you a note of authenticity that it comes from that boat. There's also a DVD containing eight millimeter behind the scenes footage of Jaws during production, and it's narrated by Islander Carol Flig Fligger. Fligger, I think. Oh, have you got that bit right? Let's hope. And yeah, it comes in a hardback portfolio package with a new, unique, with a full shot. special edition case, limited to a series of thousand numbered copies, two hundred and fifty dollars. So, oh, uh, so they got wow. two interesting books. I'll certainly uh, be buying one, probably the sixty dollar version. I don't think I can stretch to two hundred and fifty dollars. So, so about three or four years ago, I think there was some another anniversary of Jaws, whatever it was. Like, um, they did a lot of um, open air showings of the movie. But they had floating cinema screens so that the audience were actually reclining in the water. The, the showings were made at midnight, so it was pitch black. Massive floating screens. The audience in, in wetsuits were all strung together in a massive lake, well, various lakes around the US, and uh, they all roped together watching the movie, pitch black, and they had divers there as well. At Certain moments in the movie, they would grab unsuspecting audience members by the leg and yank them down a little. Oh, and uh, can you can you actually imagine that? I mean, forget about the divers pulling you under. Can you imagine being in the water in the pitch black and that music comes on? Well, you know, uh, <laughs> what insurance did they take out for that? That is just incredible, isn't it? I it's a beautiful idea. I don't even think I could I could do that. And I love the movie. Isn't it weird? You know, everyone knows that film so inside out. You know, when, that, when Ben Gardner's head lolls through the hole in the boat, you know the exact second that that dentist drill on John Williams' soundtrack's going to hit and you're going to jump out of your skin. You know the exact nanosecond it's going to happen and yet you still jump, still jump. 10 feet in yep. the air. Yep. Look, that's the power of that movie. It's a great big rubber shark. You're more terrified of that than the things you see in Deep Blue that, Sea. That's or why it's that. scary because you don't see the shark most of the time because the bloody thing didn't work. Yeah. So yeah. it's about to be imaginative, and that's yeah. why he uses the yellow barrels, which is a great motif. Yeah. The, well, the yellow danger sign was always the thing, wasn't it? God, we could talk at length about Jaws and the. Uh, yeah. If you go on for the next two hours about Jaws. Yeah. It's a phenomenal movie. Well, we in, won't, interestingly, we uh, one of the or certainly a series of the photographs in the book they haven't released the photographs yet on the website, but it's a different view of the the boy on the uh, who gets attacked at the beach. Oh yeah. Alex um, Kidna. That's the one, Kidna. And uh, it's from a different angle. And originally, it was seemingly in the original edit or the original cut of the movie and had to be removed because it was so graphic. And you got to say, I mean, the, the one that's in the movie at the minute, it's still pretty graphic. And what you see, and there's, there's a lot of suggestion there, which has its effect on you. But seemingly, there's, a, there's certain shots a from different angles. Yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the guy in the, uh, in the estuary, sharks in the estuary, shark, you know, that one. Uh, when yeah. the, the two kids about the fake fin and all that, and they all go charging in, and Brody's sons on there, they're having trouble with their little dinghy, aren't they? And this yeah, other yeah. guy comes rowing up, hey, you guys, you guys okay over there? And the shark knocks him into the water, and he sees his little leg come down. But they originally shot that where the guy was sitting in a, in a, a sort of chair inside the fake shark's mouth, and as he gets pushed towards Brody's son, and he's, he's gradually sinking underwater, but the, the actor's sitting there, 
great big teeth into his shoulders and all that on the top of his head. Blood gurgling like mad from his mouth. And it's a really, really grisly sequence. And you can see why they cut that. Yeah, so that Jaws would have been a much nastier movie and probably less effective for it. I would hate to have seen the film had the shark worked, basically. Yeah, it would have been rubbish. (laughs) The transitions from rubber shark to live shark footage are quite glaring as well, but it it just doesn't matter. It just doesn't doesn't detract from the movie at all. That shark, it's got character. Um, I wouldn't say it's got charisma, but it's, it's a personality there, a very demonic one. It ain't a normal shark. You even hear a roar as it finally you know, sinks beneath the water, blown to smithereens. Which is the same sound effect from... Of the yeah, truck Jules. in June, yeah. Yeah. which was called from an original um, dinosaur, dinosaur movie, movie, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah which none of us can remember. <laughs> yep. So, an uh, original dinosaur movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, made, made, made at the time of the dinosaurs. <laughs> 65-million-year-old documentary. dollars for that. <laughs> So anyway, I thought that was worth bringing to people's attentions. Memories from Martha's Vineyard, Jaws, 296-page book uh, from Matt Taylor. It's uh, on sale June 20th, fifty nine ninety five for the paperback and $250 for this special limited collector's edition. And I just know Chris is going to go and look at that website now. Yeah, that's right. Can't we get one for review? <laughs> 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 and by the way, can I put my fans over here for the Blu-ray of Jaws? <laughs> Which which was the next question? I mean, we have had no word yet on when this is coming to Blu-ray, which seems a um, a little odd because obviously it's uh, it's between anniversaries at the minute. So do we have to wait another three years for the fortieth anniversary edition? None of Spielberg's Universal no. movies are on Blu-ray yet, so it's going to happen in the next the next couple of years, I would say. It, ha- it's, it has been um, shown in HD, hasn't it? Uh, yeah, made, made yeah, it's on. Uh, it's been on Sky. Uh, movies classics HD so it has been so shown in HD it's gone through the process it's been restored and all that because I've read about that as well so it's de- it's definitely on the cards you know it's got to happen okay so uh, we'll move on to um, a cinema release at the moment Chris managed to get in and have a look at the press screening uh, so tell us all about this new Bond identity but with a female instead yeah um, Joe writes Hannah um, it's funny that we've just been talking about uh, the, the, the Brothers Grimm and Disney fairy tales because this sort of is a, a weird hybrid of, as you said there, Bourne, Jason Bourne, you know, the, the crack assassin uh, in search of his memory, who, who he is, why he was created like this. Hannah is a 16-year-old girl who's been brought up by her father, Eric, played by Eric Banner, up in the wilds of uh, in the frozen Finland. Uh, she's been extensively schooled in neck snappage. Uh, she's a crack shot. She's got amazing stamina. Uh, she's ob- obviously being trained for some kind of super assassin or super soldier uh, type um, career. And But there's obviously a hidden history here. Why, why is she like that? Where's her mother? There's a few little flashbacks, which we don't quite really understand. Um, now, to go along with this sort of Brothers Grimm idea... Uh, you have a big bad wolf, or rather, the wicked stepmother. And that's pay, played by uh, Kate Blanchett, who is this um, very sinister, very shady, aren't they always, CIA um, section chief, who, once she finds out that this girl is around, is still there, and Eric Banner, who's a former CIA agent, who used to work for Kate Blanchett, once, once they find out where they are, she unleashes the dogs of war, um, lots of covert operatives storm the place, but Eric Banner has been training her for this specific moment. Are you ready, dear? Yes, I'm ready, father. Right. He does a runner. You know what to do. 
contact me in a few days' time from this place. And so begins an, an odyssey uh, which takes her from Morocco, Finland, to Morocco, to Germany, um, and lots of weird head, head wastage and uh, people being killed in rather unpleasant ways. And all the while, this girl is trying to find her identity, trying to find out why she can do the things that she can do. She can run so fast. She can uh, outwit anybody. She, she gets out of it. And this is not a major spoiler. This is fairly early on because she does get captured uh, and she gets put in this deep underground um, CIA um, outpost. And there's lots of lots of guards here. There's steel bulkheads. There's ductworks, tunnels. There's all sorts of things to stop anyone getting out of there, let alone a 16-year-old girl who has had no dealings with the outside world for all of her life. She manages it, and it's an absolutely barnstorming sequence, a tour de force set piece, uh, had me on the edge of my seat. Loved it, loved it, loved it. It then goes into a sort of weird middle section, um, which would be the odyssey of meeting other people and learning about the outside world. And this is where the fairy tale elements come in. Uh, it's a little bit heavy-handed, to be honest. Uh, it's, it's, it's a weird concept to have, but a good one. Don't get me wrong, it, it works. But what is surprising about it is the guy who made the movie, and it's uh, Joe Wright, who did, and you know, these aren't my kind of movies, but he did Pride and Prejudice, and he did Atonement, you know, tales of you know, politeness and manners and etiquette and all that kind of thing. Um, and this is just a, a bruiser of a film, but with a, a bizarre, sensitive side. It's not a heartbreaker. It's not a tearjerker. Um, I will say that about it. But it has got, you know, it has got some sentimentality. You do care about this kid. Uh, she's played by a girl who I, ca- I cannot pronounce her name. Saoirse um, Ronan. Well done. I ca- apparently, I can pronounce her name, but with someone else's mouth doing the uh, the, <laughs> the verbals. Uh, yeah, she and she is outstanding. Uh, really, really good uh, actress and a great character. A very unusual character. Is it the start of a franchise? don't know I really really don't know um, I don't think it's meant to be I don't think Joe Wright set out to do um, a franchise but you know if the film's successful enough if it finds the right audience because gonna, it's going to appeal to it's going to appeal to the Jason Board, um, James Bond sort of crowd and everyone loves that kind of you know, espionage and you know the, the renegade CIA operative special forces guy or, or in this case girl who can take on all comers and outwit, you know, what, you know, whatever traps, you know, they, they set for her. Uh, and it, it works. It's a, it's a bit of a pulse pound. You've got some strange other characters in it too, because Kate Blanchett unleashes these uh, sort of untoward hitmen led by Tom Hollander with a really bizarre blonde um, shock of hair uh, and his neo-Nazi skinhead thugs. All sounds quite nasty, that doesn't it? But it's, it's not. It isn't that nasty a movie. It's you do get some uh, people. People do die. Let's be honest. And there's some bone cracking stuff in there. But it's only going to be a 12A, so it's it's not that nasty. Uh, but it's great. You have the Chemical Brothers as opposed to the Crim the, the Crim the Grim Brothers doing the soundtrack. Uh, so it's kind of techno, kind of a hypnotic, kind of in your face. Uh, I love my soundtracks. I liked bits of this soundtrack where it had me edges seats. Sometimes it seemed to grate a little bit too much and was too insistent and a bit unnecessary. And I don't normally say things like that, but you know, it, it kind of bugged me at times. Um, but I've got to recommend it. It's it's a, it's an unusual film. Um, will it spark a franchise? Uh, don't know. Don't even know if it's going to find its appropriate market because this is a strange sort of concept. 
But once you get into it, it's great. You've got supporting um, for, uh, uh, roles from Jason Fleming, the ubiquitous Jason Fleming, who's actually playing very much against type here. He's the father, and, and he's got his, he's got his wife, uh, and these are with a couple of kids traveling across Morocco, who um, Hannah stumbles into and learns about you know what sixteen year old girls should be getting up to, um, as opposed to like neck breakage and sticking needles in people. Um, isn't that what they do anyway? Um, maybe, maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. But um, so you get a bit of the, the sort of uh, the odyssey of this is what life should be like, uh, and. But that's an unusual sort of middle section. Anyway, you know, I don't want to say too much about it. It's it's got action. It's got it's got a heart. It's got a good story, and a very intriguing character. And Eric Banner's in it as well. And I like Eric Banner, and he's he's good in this. So yeah, Kate Blanchett's got a rather bizarre Texan drawl as well, which uh, I don't know. I don't know if it actually works or not. I don't think it was necessary, but it's it's like it's giving her character something to play with, you know. Anyway, there's Hannah. Yeah, I was reading an interview with Joe Wright and he was talking about shooting the action scenes and he deliberately tried to avoid the modern cliches of fast editing and shaky cam and stuff like that. Is, is that, is that true? Uh, to a point. I mean, you haven't got the Jason Bourne style uh, shaky cam, uh, which utterly ruined for me the Bourne ultimatum, but it's still pretty fastly dealt with. Uh, you've got long action scenes of a running. There's a, there's a great sequence, a very sort of Batman Begins sequence in this container yard where these neo-Nazis are chasing after her and she's running from one container to another, dropping down onto unsuspecting thugs and skirmishing with them. Now, yeah, it's not snap edited, it's not whip crack stuff, but it's, it's still also, dealt with in fairly fast format, you know. Is there a single still take swirling. fight scene as well? Is there a, are you asking me, is there a single take fight scene? Yeah. Uh, is, mm, there's a couple of, yeah, yeah, there is. Yeah, there is. There is yeah, of course there is. And it's, it's not the girl though, but it's Eric Banner. Oh, it's good, it's good. <laughs> I don't want to say don't want to say too much about it. Yeah, well, just because he's quite well known for his single takes, because he also did that one take shot of Dunkirk in Atonement as well, which was very impressive. There's lots of one take stuff, but not necessarily action scenes. You've got um, sort of travelogues following uh, Hannah as she goes across the deserts. You've got there's lots of dreamy, wistful stuff. I'm not a, I can't remember much about Pride and Prejudice at all, uh, and I didn't like Atonement. Um, so I think I, I actually think I gave up on that halfway through, but uh, so I probably missed all the best bits. I don't know. But, yeah, um, you did. It's a great film. Just try it again. <laughs> but I, I, I did like this, but I know it's a radical departure for him. So, you know, how much of the trademark stuff is in there, I'm, I'm not too sure. But, yeah, it's. I wouldn't say it totally um, goes against the sort of handheld shaky cam stuff because the fights still seem, and the action, action scenes still seem pretty fast and hyperkinetic to me, um, which... It's not a bad thing, but it wasn't disorientating like it was in uh, you know, the Bourne movies. Well, the, the worst one was and, Quantum and of Solace. Quantum of Solace, which was, well, was awful, wasn't it? Unwatchable, actually unwatchable, yeah. the fight scenes in that. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of to... the Bond series and particularly Daniel Craig's interpretation. And I do like Quantum, but you're dead right. It, it, it's the most frustrating aspect of it. It just ruins it. Yeah. You're lucky if you can see any, any, um, you know, any blows connecting. You know, it yeah, just, you've got no idea what's going downs. on. You've got no sense of geography. It's just trying to create dynamism through editing, which is not the way to do it. The worst bit being the bit in the uh, the the opera singing bit, where yeah. he takes out the special branch guy, you know, and, and all that stuff. And he's being chased at all in tuxedos. That is utterly ruined. He <laughs> <You> just, <laughs> as you say, no sense of geography. There's a, a pell-mell run through the uh, this place, this massive kitchen and dining area. And it, it, all suspense and, and, you know, excitement is utterly diluted because the fact that you're not following it, 
it's just it's just a blur. Mm. It's dealt with from a distance. I wanted to, oh, I'll tell you what I wanted to see. I wanted to see Thor. There was a, there was a preview <laughs> of that, and I couldn't, I couldn't get to it because oh, I work. It's been getting but, um, really good reviews, which I know. surprised me. At the moment, I'm, I'm following Chris Hem- Hemsworth's um, workout regime. <laughs> <laughs> you all know me in movies. I'm, I'm trying to bulk up, become like a, a god. You know. oh, I remember seeing when, when it was announced, and I was thinking, Kenneth Branagh is directing Thor. This is going to be a disaster, but uh, apparently it's quite good. Well, the thing is, it's a very, going back to its roots, it's a very Shakespearean sort of story, which is exactly what appealed to Branner. And apparently he's, he's, he's brought a lot, of, um, a lot of really good stuff to it, a lot of good action and great characterizations. It's a three-part movie, isn't it? You've got the yeah, lengthy It's still about a bloke with a big hammer, though, isn't it, really? <laughs> well, I never liked the character when I was a kid. In the comics, I was never fussed on Yeah, neither did I. I was I just some blonde dude with a, with a silly helmet and a great big hammer, which I, whose name I couldn't pronounce, you know modular what, what the hell is it called you know oh the hammer yeah yeah it's got an m and a j how do you pronounce that is it a silent m or a silent j which one is it now i know the fans are out there going screaming oh go on you should know this but i don't but anyway uh that does look really good and i really wanted to see that but is it out now or out next week it's uh, no it's out in a week or two i think right. next week but unfortunately it's, they're doing another 2d to 3d conversion which which i just hate so yeah, yeah. watch it in 2d i think yeah, so this summer's good because you've, you've got uh, Thor and then later on in the summer we've got Captain America which is directed by Joe Johnson. Green Lantern! Green Lantern! Come on now! Green Lantern and the next year the Avengers. Um, yeah. so. And the Dark Knight Rises. Come on! Get in there! Oh and Superman as well. Superman Man of Steel. Superman Reborn? Is it Reborn? No, Man, Man, of, Man, of Steel, Man of Steel. Yeah. Yeah. Man of Steel. So a good year for uh, comic book movies hopefully. It always seems to be a good year for comic book movies because <laughs> there's no stopping them now is there? No stopping them. Since the X-Men and Spider-Man barrage at the start of the, um, you know, 2000 and that, all, all of a sudden, there's just no stopping oh, that, this franchise, is X, there? X-Men First Class as well, that's coming out in the summer, that looks yeah. really good. I like, I like Matthew Vaughan, so um, that, that, that's good. And also yeah. like the cast, they've got, um, they've got Michael Fassbender and... Um, and someone else. <laughs> Hang on, he says reaching for the latest total film where they're all on the cover. Hang on a second, let me find some names for you. Uh, why do you put horrible supplements in? Really? I've just made a mess on the kitchen floor. Yeah. <laughs> <Cut that> <laughs> <up>. <laughs> oh, can you hear the sound of flicking pages? Oh, we are. It's um. Oh, what's his face from from Atonement? And yeah, yeah I know he's Atonement. I forgot his name. What's his name? James McAvoy. James McAvoy. Yeah. Uh, Kevin Bacon. Kevin Bacon, yeah. Uh, Fastbent. Yeah. Jennifer Lawrence as Mystique. Uh, Nicholas Hoot, or Hult, as Beast. It was Holt. Holt. He was Little Boy and About a Boy, bizarrely. There's our little cinema roundup. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't expect that, did you, in the, the Blu ray review podcast? <laughs> so thanks for that roundup, Chris. And uh, we're going to move over to Mark. Mark, you've got uh, one of these obscure titles that nobody's ever heard of, probably never going to see. But tell us about <laughs> it anyway Castle in the Sky. Right, Phil. Well, you've just made you a little bit of a fool of yourself there, because Studio Ghibli fans <laughs> everywhere will be shouting at you. It's uh, Hayao Miyazaki's. It was his first film for uh, Studio Ghibli, really, um, after the success of Norsegur, The Valley of the Wind in '84. The he, along with uh, his producer and uh, collaborator, um, founded Studio Ghibli, and this very much helped set down the the themes that he would carry on exploring throughout his career it's very much um 
in the Disney mold, you know, he's he's very much uh, like the Japanese Disney in that he's he's um, champions traditional animation over even today over you know computer generated imagery. It's it's really just a the classic t- uh, tale of uh, magic, mystery, and and a, an Odyssey like journey. It's uh, got all the the classic hallmarks of um, a, a Ghibli title in that it explores various eco themes and the like. It's basically a young boy uh, meets a girl who's carrying a magic crystal and is escaping nefarious forces. It's uh, it basically hinges on on much of his uh, homage to Jules Verne and Jonathan Swift. Um, in Gulliver's Travels. There was originally a, a flying island called Laputa, and basically it's it's all about this search for this this mystical island that's flying in the sky that contains technology and uh, uh treasure and and all these different things that but nobody really believes it exists and so it's just a young boy and a young girl head off in search of of the truth and a little bit of adventure it's it's the classic um disney-esque tale the kind of thing that after we've talked about um tangled that they don't tend to do as much anymore which is it it hinges very much on on innocence and uh tends to shy away from from modernism and, and skews things towards a, a slightly different universe the the disc i've got to say is absolutely stunning on this it's region b lock 1080p 1.85 to 1 avc not much to say really about the picture other than the fact that it is pretty much spot on i mean the the phrase that you can't imagine it looking any better is you know you trotted out a lot but i I really can't see how this could have looked any greater than it than it does the the miyazaki's line work is it's you know perfect delineation there the the various shots of um air travel the sky the the subtle hues of the clouds and the gradation there's not so much there's not even a hint of banding anywhere the color stability is is absolutely perfect and it's yeah it's got to be 10 out of 10 for image quality and that should please a lot of ghibli fans uh sound is a bit more of a a mixed bag in that disney when they came to release the dvd of this when they bought the rights and they distribute ghibli in the west uh they made a dub i believe it was back in 98 um unfortunately they chose slightly older actors they James Vanderbeek from uh, Dawson's Creek and Anna Paquin from at the time from X-Men. Uh, it, it does change things somewhat in that they're in their teens and it's it's clearly people in late teens coming towards early 20s trying to sound like their children. So James Vanderbeek does his best to put on a, a broken voice like a child trying to buy fireworks. But, um, and, and also they've... It's supposed to have um, various changes that were approved by Miyazaki. Um, the score by Joe Hisashi, who's very much a legend in the field, uh, was changed so that they could put more in there, so that they could change it to 5.1. And, and here we've got two lossless tracks. You've got the original Japanese LPCM 2.0, and then you've got English LPCM 5.1. But the, the problem is that the LFE channel in the, the English version doesn't actually add that much weight to it. It does underpin the score nicely, but there's just 
there's a lot more noise going on and it, it, it slightly undermines the fact that the original Japanese track was supposed to be quite um, contemplative. It was supposed to have moments of quiet and, and the moments of discovery was supposed to be of almost silence and then you would get gentle music coming. Whereas the, in the American version, obviously, you know, the modern um, Disney style of, you know, everything has to end in a crescendo of types. And, and as was being said about the big musical numbers entangled, uh, it's it's very Americanized and it, it feels quite like they're aiming for barnstorming for from a material that doesn't really require it. But, you know, both tracks are extremely of of extremely high quality. You know, the clarity's there. The the two point track feels particularly wide. It's you know, it never has a problem with the speech and the like. And there's a a healthy amount of extras on the disc with storyboards and promotional videos. So as a as a package for Ghibli fans, it is absolutely top draw. And I'm sure there are more than two listening. I know I, I've seen some um, Miyazaki stuff. Uh, oh, God. Howl's Moving Cat. What is it? What's the other one? Spirited Away is magnificent. It is. I've got, I've got, to, I've got to say that. And um, what's the one where they're fighting this big creature in the, in the woods, which is like a, a massive slimy wolf thing? Oh, Princess. M- M- Princess. Mononoke. M- Princess. That's the one. <laughs> that is great. Of many N's and O's in that. <laughs> that is a good one, yeah. I like that. That is great, yeah. No, I'm not a dissenter, mate. I'm not, honestly. I, I, I think the stuff's wonderful, very imaginative, very... It's not... It doesn't... Um, it, it, it doesn't condescend to kids because it is darker, it's weird, it's unusual imagery. Uh, there's things happening there which you can't quite... Well, as far as I'm concerned, can't quite figure out. Um, it, it's definitely an Eastern sort of storytelling. And, yeah, visually splendid. Yeah, imagination, can't, can't fault it at all. Uh, I just haven't... You know, I've not been sucked into it as much as uh, as you have. My kids have watched the stuff as well, and they, and they thoroughly enjoy it. So it does go across the, uh, the generations. Okay, so uh, thanks for that one, Mark. And we're going to finish things off um, again, animation. Uh, again, it's on Blu-ray. And again, Chris is going to tell us all about it. Yay! It's uh, The Incredibles. Finally oh. makes it to Blu-ray. And it's absolutely awesome. If ever a film lived up to its title, this is the one. It's my favourite Pixar movie by far. It's one of uh, my favourite movies, uh, you know, modern movies uh, altogether. It just seems, for me, this film has absolutely everything. It's a great story. I love superhero stories, and it's a good superhero story. Um, And it also looks at, you know, dysfunctionality in the family and approaching a midlife crisis. You have the superheroes to begin with. You know, there's a million of these guys and they're saving the world left, right and centre and they're getting sick of it. They're celebrities now, but they're holding on to their, their private identities. M- Mr. Incredible meets the Elastigale and it's Craig T. Nelson voices Mr. Incredible. It's Holly Hunter, the delectably voiced uh, Texan sort of lisp that she's got for, for the character who I think is the absolute sexiest bunch of pixels I have ever, ever seen. I've always had a passion for Elastigale or Mrs. Incredible as she becomes in the first part of the movie. Um, always. Looks like my wife as well. My wife's not quite as stretchy, but, you know, <laughs> looks gorgeous. We mentioned Tangled before. It's funny because if you take the hair off uh, Rapunzel in Tangled, you've got Elastigale's face there. So it's a, there's, a definite, there's a definite look. They've took that form out there. Cute, cute beyond belief. Anyway, I mean, she's a brunette and I prefer brunettes. Uh, so, right, the superheroes saved the world day in, day out. Uh, finally, 
the thing that you never see in superhero movies or in the comics is the repercussions of their acts of daring do. Uh, because they're, they're saving people from suicide, Mr. Incredible saves someone from suicide, and they, the guy didn't want to survive. He wanted to die. And he takes him to court, sues him. Uh, people who in train crashes, their, their lives have been saved, but you know they've been injured in the process. The whole world turns against the supers because they're causing more damage than good. So they go underground, the government protection system uh, gives them new identities and boring humdrum, humdrum jobs. I've got to learn to slow down when I speak because I just rollercoast <laughs> over myself and you know my, my teeth and lips can't keep up with this. But um, So you flash forward to 15 years, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Incredible uh, now have kids who all have super, superhero powers. I mean, you all know this movie, don't you? It's, it's an absolute, it's a balls-out classic. Um, very James Bondian and very retro. You, these people, characters are hailing from a Norman Rockwell sort of uh, 1950s, you know, the Jetsons and all that sort of stuff. They're hailing from that kind of period. So it's all very sort of, uh, you know, cozy suburbia and boring rat race jobs. Mr. Incredible gets given the shot of a lifetime. He's going to, you know, sort of underground, covertly become a superhero again. And he has to fight. He has to go to this island and fight these omnidroid things, which, of course, transpires have been created by his childhood, um, you know, hero. It's the guy who idolized him and the guy that he also spurned. And, you know, I, I don't want to work with this guy. I don't have, you know, partners and all that. I don't have associates. And this guy goes off and develops a massive raging resentment of all superheroes, um, in particular Mr. Incredible. So, anyway, off to this island he goes, beats the droid, uncovers the, the plot, gets captured, and the family then have to search to his rescue using their unique individual superhero talents. Uh, Dash, who can run faster than a speeding bullet, um, the Violet, who's the, the, you know, the sort of gawky teenage girl, who sort of literally a shrinking Violet because she, doesn't, she can't approach the guys that she fancies. She literally is invisible. But of course, she can be invisible. That's her power. And create force fields. And of course, there's baby Jack-Jack, but we won't go into what he can do because he can do quite a lot of stuff. And lots of chaos ensues. The whole film becomes a very James Bondian pastiche because you have vast underground bases, uh, very... Clearly inspired by the 60s uh, Ken Adams super sets that he built for the, uh, the early Bond movies. Wonderful sort of uh, James Bond music as well. Michael Giacchino, uh, a great, great composer, uh, went from strength to strength after this. But it, it, it's a pure, brassy, you know, very ballsy, in-your-face, jazzed-up James Bond-style soundtrack. Really rip-roaring stuff. Uh, it is a great, great film. But it's in the, the quieter moments as well where it excels. It's great characterization. You have, as I said before, the midlife crisis. I can identify with uh, Robert Parr, who is Mr. Incredible. I can identify with this guy. He's still got a bit of bolt, a bit of muscle too, but he's got a bit of middle age spread as well. Oh man, I know what that's like. He's doing weights. He's still trying to. He wants. He's still living in the past. He wants to be that hero that he used to be. I know. I know where you're coming from, Bob. And um, but he's got this really sexy, adorable wife who can't quite satisfy him because he's got these dreams of grandeur. And they've got to keep quiet and all this. And the family having problems at school. The kids having problems at school and all this sort of stuff. They've got talents they want to use. It's great. It's great. Uh, that final dynamic seems to work excellently. Um, and the action is absolutely blinding. Uh, watching it again on Blu-ray, and I've seen the film umpteen times, obviously. Uh, watching it on Blu-ray, there's a lot more that you see and a lot more little, little stuff taking place around the frame. Uh, 
So let's talk about the Blu-ray. My God, what what a the standard disc was sumptuous, you know, AV gold, you know, for the medium that it was on at the time. Now we, we you know, obviously we move on, we evolve into 1080p, and wow, what a difference! Absolutely, almost flawless, almost flawless, I would say. I was told to look out for banding, the vicious bugbear of any animated fair, uh, with intense colours and saturations. And well, did I see any? You know, I didn't. I, I haven't seen any banding on it. I've been told it's there, but I, my God, poke my eyes out, but I can't see it. Um, I did see some slight shimmering uh, and some. There's one moment uh, I noticed where on a, on a sideways pan, there was a bit of judder. Uh, but God, I'm really nitpicking, aren't I? There, this is, and I was looking for it, so don't forget that. It is absolutely blisteringly good. It's pure eye candy. It's like they've got a rainbow and melted it into the screen, and then and just painted the colours across it. It is dazzling, dazzling stuff. Me love, me love, big time. Um, it's got a. What is the soundtrack on it? It's DTS HD, and it is it's 6.1. Is it 6.1? I can't remember now. It's 5.1. But it doesn't matter. It's absolutely gobsmacking stuff. Uh, tremendous bass. It always was an action-packed soundtrack. Uh, there's loads of action scenes. Lots of stuff whistling past you. You've got the Omnidroid running about you and, and hitting all the speakers, running right around you. You've got Dash. The little sound of his scampering feet as he runs across the water through the jungle. Dear God almighty, it's unbelievable. So pin-sharp, so clear. And also so surprisingly cute to see these little tiny feet padding across the room like that. And the uh, sounds of breaking glass, another great favourite. Uh, crystal, crystal sharp, crystal clear. Uh, the big bass elements, whoa, the crashes, the, the crash bang wallop. It's, it's just a wash with glorious AV, you know, pyrotechnics. Um, the lush jungles, back onto the visuals again. The lush jungle canopy, oh, it's jaw-dropping. The detail that's there. The three-dimensionality, it's only a 2D release, you know, but the three-dimensionality, the depth to that image is still impeccable. Um, and Elastigale, oh, dear God, if only she existed, I would track it down. <laughs> the hair, you know, you've got the finite quality of, of, of the hair on all these characters, but especially on um, Elastigale, it, it just, it, it's real hair. <laughs> God, it's amazing. Um, and, yeah. <laughs> Boy, do I love this movie. <laughs> really? I, I, I'm going to stop now before I actually explode. <laughs> no, it's, uh, it's wonderful, wonderful. Um, Just, go on. I was think, do you stop. think I make a good double bill with Watchmen? Because it kind of covers the yeah. same ground, doesn't it? It, it? it does, in a way. But it's a lot more fun than Watchmen, though, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> Watchmen's well, great. It's a, it's, a, it's a great film. But yeah, they're probably the two that really... There's going to be umpteen other examples, I'm sure. But at the moment, all I can think of now, after you've kindly reminded me of Watchmen... Two films that deal with superheroes in that kind of manner where they're rejected. And, you know, the, the real life behind having to have an identity, an assumed identity, and, you know, the, the dreams that these people are going to have. And it, it does deal with it. And you don't get many superhero movies that do that in such a fashion. Because let's face it, it's a family. It's just a normal family having the normal family kind of problems. But they've also got this little offshoot as well. The fact that they can save the world and, you know, run to the moon and back, you know, all this kind of thing. Uh, I love it. Uh, and watching it again, I must admit, I hadn't seen it for, for a while until I got the Blu-ray. And it just amazed me by how, how funny, how witty that script is. Edna Modes, you know, who's the, the, the diminutive um, 
Austrian, you know, Austrian German fashionista who designs the uh, the costumes for these guys and the wonderful voice. It's it's Brad Bird who actually does the voice, isn't it? For, at the yeah, moment, yeah. Brad yeah. Bird who directed the movie. Ah, um, oh, what a great character! Just it's just fantastic. All the little bits in it gel so well together. Uh, just impeccable for an incredible movie. Uh, Frozone, Samuel Jackson's Frozone. You know, it's just awesome stuff. Honey, where's my super suit? You know, come on. It, it, the thing is, these are superheroes, but we identify with them because they've all got the same humdrum existence in the house. Once again, you're arguing with the wife. She's spotting, well, maybe this is just me. She's spotting a blonde hair on your, on your jacket and all this sort of stuff. Uh, <laughs> we're going to get back to the, uh, the frying pan with wifely vigor in a minute. But, uh, and ki- the annoying kids, kids getting on your nerves and, you know, it, it, it's all it's all there. It's genuine, and it's wrapped up in a gloriously animated package about superheroes. <laughs> this giant, the retro giant robots. What what is not to love about this film? It's just got everything, um, and I, ne- I would never tire of watching it. And now it's on Blu-ray. There's no excuses. <laughs> uh, extras wise, I've got to be honest with you. I haven't seen any of them, but I know that it replicates all the things that were on the original release. This is the American disc I'm looking at right now. Uh, it's a four-disc combo pack. So it's you know sumptuous. You've got two uh, the, the Blu-ray, obviously. You've got a um, digital copy. You've got a DVD copy as well. Um, you've got another Blu-ray of extra features. Uh, but as I say, it replicates everything that was on the original release. But I think it's got a hell of a lot more besides. You've got the shorts. You've got Jack Jack Attack, which is the one that showcases exactly what Jack Jack can do. Um, baby Jack Jack, that is. Uh, bounding short film. Um, what else have we got? I'm reading off the back of the box here, and of course it just says this, 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 and more. Uh, so I'm afraid I can't really give you a great deal of stuff here. Interactive, the new Nomanazan. Nomanazan? Nomanazan Island. Island. Oh, of course, yeah, yeah. Do you know what? Why didn't I get that? It, it, took, it took actually reading it with my own eyes to suddenly realise what that was. <laughs> oh, dear. And I'm the big fan. <laughs> so, uh, that just leaves Finding Nemo as the last Pixar movie that's not on Blu-ray, isn't it? Yeah. And that's the best one. I wish they'd get on with it. Uh, Nemo was a great no. film. Yeah. No. Yeah. Incredibles is the best one. No, oh, Nemo well is my favourite. Incredibles, Monsters, Inc. Uh, then Nemo, I would say. Oh, and then Toy Ones. Toy Toy Blurb, one, two, and three. Ah. No, uh, Incredibles for me, it just does it every time. Every, every element of it works. Uh, just uh, you know, skiving off, you know, with, with your best friend uh, behind your wife's back, not to have an affair, you know, or we're going bowling, but you're not. You listen to the police scanner, and you want to go on and have a little adventures. I think it's just, it's so, it's just so, so good, so, so cute. I, I so identify with Bob Parr. <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit sad, really. <laughs> you, you are, these are characters that you genuinely care about, yeah. And it's, it's a great, it's a great uh, conceit that. The kids are in genuine jeopardy. Yeah. As um, Elastic Girl says to the, the kids, once they've got to the island and they're in a little cave, and she says, you know, not like the, uh, the TV shows you used to watch on Saturday afternoons, unlike the bad guys in those, these bad guys will try to kill you. And they do. You know, they're going to mm. shoot them. They're going to they're kill them. <laughs> it, it, so you've got genuine threat there as well. Yeah. It doesn't take any prisoners. It's just all-round excellence. Excellence. Absolutely. It's got a heart. It makes you laugh. It makes Simon cry. <laughs> and it's got that horny bunch of pixels, which is Mrs. Incredible. 
Dear God. And like Syndrome, it makes Chris monologue. <laughs> <laughs> you sly dog, you. You've got me monologuing. <laughs> I don't think you've drawn breath in the last 20 minutes, have you? I'm got, I will collapse in a second. <laughs> I've shrunk down to the size of a mouse now. Uh, by the way, I recommend it. It's, uh, it's great. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> you haven't seen it. Uh, it's a good one. Incredibles. Uh, Disney Pixar. Okay, well, on that bombshell, and uh, because time's running out rapidly, uh, we're going to have to finish for this month. Uh, So all I need to do now is thank Chris, Mark, Simon, and Steve. Thanks very much, guys. Cheers, Phil. Cheers, Phil. Been a blast. And don't forget to join us again next month for more Movie Capers on the Movies Podcast. It's Phil Hinton saying thanks for listening, and we'll see you again soon. The AV Podcast was presented by Phil Hinton. Original music by Andrew Bassett and Richard Cosgrove. The AV Podcast was mixed and produced by Phil Hinton, and the senior producer was Stuart Wright. All content, including sound clips and music, is copyright material and featured for promotional use only. The AV Podcast is copyright M2M Limited.